And it is good to see you guys again, and good to worship with you again on the Lord's Day. We're going to continue in our series through the first 11 chapters of the Bible, and I think one of the benefits of expositional preaching and the way that we go through passages of the Bible successively is that we often have to deal with things that we wouldn't normally deal with otherwise. And so in Genesis chapter 9, we have the death penalty, rainbows, and in the passage which our brother Patrick did not have to read, Noah curses his grandson. So we got some work to do. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. God, thank you for the Bible. And as we open it now, we pray that you would show us Christ for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we are continuing through our passage, uh, our, our, uh, our series in Genesis 1 through 11. And last week, Pastor Tony faithfully preached to us the story of Noah's Ark and the flood from chapters 6 through 8. And we learned that the flood narrative presents us with a kind of a reversal and a renewal of creation. Right, so in a sense, the flood returns the world back to its original state. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that the earth was formless and void, darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The flood was a kind of a decreation. It was an undoing of all of God's creative work. God essentially unplugs creation and plugs it back in again. And he starts over with those that he saved in the ark. Now when Noah and his family and the animals leave the ark, we're told in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21 that God will never again curse the ground or strike down every living creature. And he says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we need to realize that the world is so broken, right? That people are so broken by sin that God would be right and just to just unplug creation and plug it back in again with every new generation. If man's heart is evil from his youth, then it would, might make sense, given the pattern that we have seen in the first eight chapters of Genesis, that God might just hit the reset button over and over again. But we're told in chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So then we come to chapter 9, and we realize that after the reversal and the renewal of creation, God resets the stage upon which the drama of redemption will unfold. God is not a God who will just continually press the reset button, but he resets the stage upon which the drama of redemption will unfold. God preserves the natural order of things to ensure that there will be a world for the Son of God to enter into and to redeem humanity. So we get to look at chapter 9 uh, basically in, in three phases. The first phase is God gives us a commission to fulfill. And we'll look at that in verses 1 to 7. And then he gives us a covenant to remember in verses 8 to 17. And then in verses 18 through 28, we have a curse to understand. A commission to fulfill, a covenant to remember, and a curse to understand. So let's look first at this commission that God gives us to fulfill. 
Right, so with a renewed creation comes a kind of renewed Adam. Noah stands as being in the new head, as being the new head of the human race. He's kind of like Adam 2.0. And the question is, will he be an upgrade from the first version? And because Noah stands as the new head of the human race, he gets the same commission that Adam gets in Genesis 1, 28 to 30. Be fruitful and multiply and rule over the animals. Now, we need to realize that each part of this commission is rooted in the fact that people are created in the image of God. So when God says, be fruitful and multiply, when he says to have children, he's saying to spread his image across the face of the earth. And that's actually, that that bookends the commission in verse 1 and in verse 7. Spread the image of God across the face of the earth. And as we're spreading the image of God, he's going to tell us to display the image of God and the way that we rule over creation and the way that we represent God to creation. And then he says to protect the image of God by, don't, by not killing one another. So first he says to spread the image of God. Have children. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So according to my ESV study Bible notes, which are in the Bible, but they're not inspired, just so we understand, this stands in sharp contrast to the Babylonian flood story, which actually ends with the gods taking measures to prevent mankind from filling the earth. But the Bible makes clear that population growth is a divine desire. Because God wants more and more image bearers who bring Him glory. Ultimately, the instruction to be fruitful and multiply is a command to exponentially increase the number of worshipers on the earth. So first, the first thing that we realize is that God is zealous for His own glory. And that's good news for us. God is zealous for His own glory. The whole Bible testifies that everything God does is aimed at the praise of His name. Think of this. He makes people in His own image to worship Him and to represent Him to the rest of creation. But unfortunately, God's crowning work of creation become terrible creatures. And the worship that we're meant to give to God, we give to literally anything or anyone else. We are in need of redemption. So what does God do? God sends His Son into the world on a rescue mission to reclaim the worship that God is due. That's why we read in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him because of everything Christ did on the cross and in His resurrection. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. And then God sends all who confess Jesus as Lord to tell others of the good news of Christ Jesus. That's why John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because God is zealous for His glory. Now, if you flip over several pages to to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, we see a multitude of people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue standing around the throne in heaven, singing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, if we could somehow draw a schematic 
of the whole Bible. The line that would begin at be fruitful and multiply and end at this great multitude in Revelation chapter 7, that line would run straight through, go and make disciples. So the commission to be fruitful and multiply is about increasing the image of God on the earth, and it paves the way for the eternal worship of Jesus Christ. This creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply previews the great commission, and it anticipates the worship of the Lamb of God. That's why God says, spread my image across the face of the earth because I've got big plans. And as you're doing that, display the image of God to the world, particularly in the way that you rule over the animals. I'm looking at verses 2 through verse 4. Right, so just like Adam, Noah is told to have dominion over the animals, but there are two new developments in the way that God articulates this, uh, this, this commission. One development is negative, and the other is very positive. Let's do the negative one first, because we'll save the fun for later. The first thing God says is that animals will fear and dread the image of God that rules over them. The animals that were apparently tame on the ark are now fearful of Noah. And God says, into your hands they are delivered. Right, so because people are made in God's image, He allows us to rule over everything that He has made. We get to represent God as those made in His image to the world that He has made. Earlier this week, I was uh, taking a walk on the, green, the Greenway that runs through my neighborhood. And I had, obviously, this passage in mind as I'm preparing to, to preach Genesis 9. And because I was thinking about this passage, I was kind of struck by... Uh, how, struck by how every animal that I saw was running away from me. <laughs> like there were lizards and squirrels and rabbits and birds and deer. And I saw the tail end of all of them <laughs> because they were all running away from me. And it's not like I'm the gruffalo rock, walking through the woods. Okay, I'm not being loud. I don't think I look that scary. But the animals just seem to be inclined whenever I approach to run away even though I meant them no harm at all. And I had this thought, isn't it fascinating how the animals fear and dread of the image of God that rules over them is sort of a picture for us of the way that we often fear and dread God's rule over us. How often are we afraid of God's rule because we forget that He is good and He is wise and that He means us no harm? We forget that he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And maybe if we remembered those things, we, our hearts wouldn't be so prone to wander. So God says that the animals will fear and dread humanity. But the very positive development is, God then in verse 3 establishes PETA. People eating tasty animals. God in his kind providence ordains for his children steak and bacon, praise the Lord, and shrimp tacos and turducken. So me and my family, last night we went to Longhorns to celebrate. Now, if we're going to be honest students of the Bible, right, we can recognize that being vegetarian or being vegan may have some health benefits, especially if you do it right. But I'm just saying... It's not a moral high ground. Okay? Jesus ate fish. 
Sometimes he ate fish for breakfast. That's a good precedent. The reality is we display the image of God to the world when we rule over creation in a way that reflects God's sovereign care. And as we reflect God's sovereign care to the world, God says, I will allow you to take the life of an animal, to kill an animal for the purpose of food. The way that we interact with creation should say to the world, this is what your creator is like. And that means not exploiting it in a way that is cruel or without purpose. So in verse 4, God says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. As one commentator says, With this prohibition, God is limiting the the wildness of humanity. Because God knows people will try anything at least once. Can you imagine, like, the first person who saw a chicken lay an egg, and they were like, it looks good. (laughs) God is limiting the wildness of humanity by saying, don't eat the blood, okay? You can eat the animal, but don't eat the blood. Because even in the killing of an animal for food, there should be respect for the giver of life, and the blood represents the life of the animal. We see this, this theme Uh, developed all the way throughout the Old Testament as God institutes the sacrificial system in which the blood is to be held sacred. And you go all the way to when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, this is my blood of the covenant. He didn't mean that he was just bleeding for the forgiveness of sins. He meant he is pouring out his life on behalf of sinners. And so in the way that we are told to display God's image to the world, we're told to Hold the blood sacred because it has far more meaning than just eating the blood of animals. So we spread the image of God throughout the world. We display the image of God as it's spreading and we're told to protect the image of God. God institutes the death penalty because if the blood of animals is regarded as sacred, how much more the blood of humans? How much more the blood of those who bear God's image? And we've already seen that from the fall to the flood... Humanity was violent and murderous. And so even after the world is, in a sense, cleansed by the flood, the heart of man is still selfish and wicked. And if human nature is the same after the flood as it was before, well then how is God going to prevent the same thing from happening over again? How is God going to prevent the same violence and the corruption from happening again? The same violence and corruption for which He flooded the world. God says in verse 5 that anyone who sheds the blood of man, whether that be an animal or that be another human being, I will require a reckoning. There must be a payment. So God restrains the violence and protects the image of God in people by making murder a capital offense. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And there is so much that we could say about that topic. But I just want you to know that my primary goal this morning is not to present a biblical argument for the continued use of the death penalty in the modern era, in the New Testament age, okay? I do think that that's possible. I think we can do that, but I don't think that would be the best use of our time together this morning. We'll have to maybe schedule a one-off sermon uh, and to talk about the death penalty. Maybe we'll Schedule it around Christmas time or something like that. (laughs) Or Mother's Day. (laughs) 
we can cut that out of the video, I think, when we post it. No, my primary goal is to show you why God institutes the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9. So I know that we're going to skip over a lot of the relevant implications of Genesis chapter 9 and how we go about setting up society and interacting with the rule of law and due process and guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, I think we can go f start from the Bible and get to all of those things. But I want to answer the question, why the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9? A couple of reasons. One is practical and one is theological. A practical reason is because it actually facilitates population growth. Right? At the time when God said this, there were no less than eight people in the world at this time. And it's going to be hard to fill the earth with the image of God if Noah's sons start killing each other the way that Adam's did. Okay. Now on that note, remember when Cain killed his brother, how God dealt with him directly and he protected him from further bloodshed. And then eventually Cain's descendant, Lamech, also became a murderer, and he boasted of his 77-fold vengeance. God says, that's not happening again. So when you compare that to Genesis 9, it seems like a life for a life is an appropriate and a measured response. It seems that God is restraining violence and tempering the vengeance of man. Because we don't need the new first family ending up like the Hatfields and the McCoys. So that's the practical reason, and there's a theological reason, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God institutes the death penalty in Genesis 9 because it acknowledges the significance that people are made in the image of God. And that human life is to be so highly regarded that it is protected by the penalty of death and nothing less will suffice, whether that comes at the paws of an animal or the hands of another person. God will require a reckoning for the life of man. People are made in God's image, and so murder isn't just killing another human being. It's killing what is most like God in all of creation. Murder is an attack on God himself. So the death penalty as a punishment for murder is intended to protect the image of God as it spreads across the face of the earth. And so as God sets the stage for the drama of redemption to unfold, he gives us a commission to fulfill, and then he gives us a covenant to remember. Beginning in verse 8, right, he said that God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And he says, With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark. It's for every beast of the earth. Now this is the first time in the Bible that we are explicitly told that God is making a covenant. So before we look at God's covenant with Noah, I want to try to just step back a little bit from Genesis 9. Okay, and just answer the question, like, what is a covenant, and how do they function in the Bible? How do, they, how do they help us understand what's going on in the Bible? A covenant is basically God's way of establishing a special relationship with a person or a group of people. Now, what we find in Genesis 9 is with all of creation itself. It's God's way of establishing a special relationship and then defining what that relationship should look like. And when God makes a covenant, it usually follows a specific pattern. 
There's normally a promise from God, right? And that forms the basis of the covenant. That forms the basis of the relationship that God is establishing. God makes a promise. And then oftentimes there are conditions of the covenant. So in other words, there may be certain requirements that are placed upon those that God is covenanting with in order for them to enjoy the benefits of the relationship. And then God would express blessings and curses for abiding by those conditions or failing to abide by those conditions. So there's a promise. Oftentimes there are, times there are conditions. And then there is a sign of the covenant. God offers a sign so that we would remember that God will remember the relationship that he has established. And one of the neat things about covenants is that oftentimes there's a covenant representative. Sometimes God makes a covenant with a person And in the course of time and in the course of reading the Bible, we find that that person represents a much larger group of people. Now, if you want to grow in your understanding of how the whole Bible fits together, then you should do some homework on covenants. There are five, at least five, major covenants that help us navigate the Scriptures. I'm going to tell you what those are and where they come from in the Bible. The, okay, so, so the, and these, these are just kind of like the main places in the Bible. They're referenced all the way throughout. Uh, but the first one is the God's covenant with Noah, okay? The Noahic covenant, which is here in Genesis 9. And then you have the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and you can go to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 for that. The Mosaic covenant... God's covenant with Moses, which, becomes, which is really God's covenant with, with Israel as he gives them the law from Mount Sinai, and you can go to Exodus 19 through 24. There's the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David and his promises that David would always have a son who reigns on God's throne. 2 Samuel 7. And then there's the new covenant in Jesus Christ, which is prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36 is fulfilled in the Gospels, and is explained in the Epistles. Now, these these covenants help us navigate the Scriptures, because in the Noahic covenant, God restrains judgment. In the Abrahamic covenant, God restores a people for Himself in a land that He provides. In the Mosaic covenant, God reveals Himself in the law and points us to our need for a Savior. In the Davidic covenant, God reigns over His people as King through an eternal Son of David. And finally, in the New Covenant, God regenerates those who come to Him through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The covenants teach us that God restrains, He restores, He reveals, He reigns, and He regenerates. So no matter where you are in the Bible, you can go to those covenants and say, okay, now I understand how all of this fits together. So we get to look at the first of those covenants now in Genesis 9. In verses 8 through 10, we find the audience of the covenant, right? Just as the flood killed all humans and all animals, God makes a covenant with all humans and all animals. And in verse 11, we find the promise that God would never again strike down all living things and destroy the earth with a flood, which echoes chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. What God said then in his heart, he now speaks with his words. And he reveals to us that striking down all flesh is not going to be his pattern. It would be easy to think if we just had the first eight verses of the Bible that this is what God is like. But God says, absolutely not. When you think of me, you will not think of judgment. You will think of a promise of peace. And notice 
There are no conditions to this covenant. God makes an unconditional promise. So no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how bad humanity gets, God says, no matter how bad it gets, I will never strike down all flesh again by means of a flood. And then in verses 12 to 17, God gives us the sign of the promise, which is the rainbow. Right? The rainbow is a signal to all of creation that God's judgment is being restrained. And notice who does the remembering. God doesn't say the sign is there so that we could remember. He says the sign is there, and he says, I will remember. He puts the sign in the sky so that we will know that God will not forget his promises. Now, Genesis 9 clearly speaks of a rainbow, but some have drawn allusions to this as a warrior's bow. Similar to Psalm 7, verse 12, that says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. That God has a bow and arrow that he uses for judgment. And so when God says, I have set my bow in the cloud... It communicates to us that because the bow points upward toward God and not down toward sinners, that the next time God picks up his bow for judgment, he will bear the wrath that his people deserve. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know if that's reading too much into Genesis 9, but it preaches good. It is quite amazing and shouldn't really be all that surprising to us that God designs and directs natural events in order to display his faithfulness. Like his kindness and his compassion is built into the very laws of physics. Right? We know how rainbows appear. When light shines through water or moisture or even glass or anything that kind of acts as a prism, it separates the light into its various colors. Science can tell us how a rainbow appears, but only God tells us why it appears. And in our culture, the rainbow has become a label for unbiblical behavior and a sign of acceptance. But the meaning that God gives us is not acceptance, but forbearance. God is withholding his judgment. Although humanity is fully worthy of it, God promises peace. And he tells us as much in Isaiah 54, in verses 9 and 10. God says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Praise God, he has made a covenant of peace. And the other places in the Bible where we see the rainbow pop up actually shows us how God fulfills this covenant of peace. In Ezekiel 1, verse 28, the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel's vision of heaven, it says, it shone like the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Ezekiel gets his vision of heaven And he sees like the glory of the Lord is like this rainbow. And then the Apostle John sees the same thing in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. And he who sat there, that is on the throne in heaven, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So I don't care what the Lucky Charms commercials tell you. A rainbow does not lead you to a pot of gold. 
It leads us to the throne in heaven. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant of peace that God made with Noah and all flesh. As Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the peace that we have with God in Christ is not a forbearance of judgment. It's a fulfillment of judgment. Because Christ's sacrifice on the cross satisfies God's wrath against sin. Therefore, if you are a Christian in this room this morning, if you are in Christ in the way that Noah was in the ark, you don't have to fear the judgment that is to come. Are you not excited by that? You do not have to fear God's judgment if you are in Christ. And there will be another judgment to come. It won't be a flood that will destroy the earth again, but the New Testament makes clear that this world is not permanent and that God will bring judgment again, and next time it will be a judgment by fire. So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I want you to heed these words from 2 Peter chapter 3, which has much to say about the coming of the day of the Lord and the destruction of the wicked that it will bring. Speaking of those who scoff at the truth of the gospel and those who walk in wickedness, the Bible says, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, that is, the water and the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It is God's grace and kindness to us that he tells us what lies ahead in the future. And my friend, a day is coming when God will judge the earth once again. And just like Noah escaped the first judgment of God by entering the ark, you can escape this future judgment by looking to Christ, by placing your faith in Jesus. And listen to me, God promised never to flood the earth again. And he's kept that promise for thousands of years. And he also promises to save everyone who turns to Jesus. And guess what? He's going to keep that promise too. That's a check that you can cash. You can take that to the bank. Everyone who turns to Jesus, God will save. That's the covenant that God makes with Noah and its fulfillment in Christ. So we have a commission to fulfill. We have a covenant to remember. And finally, there is a curse to understand. We'll move quickly through this last part of the chapter. In verses 18 and 19, we're told that from Noah's sons, the whole earth is populated. But one of Noah's grandsons gets a kind of a dishonorable mention. There's Canaan, the son of Ham. And he plays an important role in the events that follow. Okay? So what had happened was, Noah and his sons and all the animals get off the ark. And after some time, the man who was meant to bring relief from toil began to be a man of the soil. That's all I got. <laughs> That's the extent of my hip-hop abilities, okay? <laughs> after some time, Noah grows a vineyard. And Noah gets tanked. One preacher said, Noah gets juiced up and dressed down. That was me. I'm the preacher. <laughs> I got a lot more, too, but I'll spare you. Now, normally, 
Getting drunk and naked is what happens when you're on the cruise, right? Not after you get off the boat. So Noah got it backwards. You actually shouldn't do that on the cruise either. That's very bad. Noah gets drunk and naked in his tent, and then his youngest son, Ham, it's always the youngest child, comes along, and he sees his father in all of his 600-year-old glory, and he mocks him to his brothers, probably like I'm doing now. But Shem and Japheth realize the shame that their father has brought upon himself, and so they devise a plan to walk into the tent backwards and cover Noah in such a way so that they don't even have to look at him. And Noah eventually sobers up and then somehow realizes what has taken place, and his response is to curse Canaan, the son of Ham. And he blesses Shem and Japheth for the honor that they showed him, which is quite curious because he doesn't curse Ham, who was the one who mocked him, and he doesn't curse any of Ham's other children. He only curses Canaan. So what in the world's going on? Why doesn't Moses just go straight from verse 9 to verse 28 when he's writing Genesis 9? Wouldn't it make sense to just say, from these people uh, of the whole, the whole earth, uh, the people of the whole earth were dispersed, and after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, 950 in total, and Noah died. Apparently, verses 20 to 27 are significant for a couple of reasons. One, it actually foreshadows much of the history of Israel and the Canaanites. And second, it presents us with a kind of a second fall narrative. So first, the Israel and the Canaanites. Right? Moses is writing Genesis as the people of God are on the brink of taking possession of the land of Canaan. One commentary says, Moses is demonstrating to his Israelite readers who are preparing to enter the land of Canaan that this man, Canaan the son of Ham, is the head of the Canaanite people. And the Canaanites, who are standing against God in their idolatry and wickedness, are continuing a tradition that goes all the way back to Ham. So the curse of Canaan informs God's people that the Canaanites have had it coming to them for a long time. But this also presents us with a second fall narrative. Because just as Adam was compromised by fruit, so was Noah. Just as Adam's nakedness displayed his shame, so does Noah's. And just as Adam had to be covered, so did Noah. We come to these verses and we remember that we've, we've just come through the reversal and the renewal of creation. And now Noah stands as a kind of a new Adam to which God has restated his commission and made a covenant with him. God unplugs creation and plugs it back in again, and so far things seem to be going really well. But these verses show us that this is not the time when sin will be finally dealt with. That Noah is not the one who will bring final rest from our toil. In both instances, with Adam and with Noah, the head of the human race shows himself to be a sinner, which shows us that we need a better Savior. We need someone better than Adam, and better than Noah, to come and provide the rescue that we need, to come and crush the head of the serpent. Clearly the flood didn't do that for us. So we stand on this end of the cross, and we look back at Genesis 9, and we get to realize that one is coming who will bring final rest. 
One is coming from the line of Shem who will cover our shame. That one is coming who will reconcile God and man. One is coming who will make a way for the God who flooded the world in judgment to be a fountain of grace for us. One is coming who will endure a deluge of God's wrath so that we can sing, Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. One is coming, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, may we as a people make much of you. May we also be zealous for your glory in the way that you are. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you how every, every part of your word points us to Jesus. I pray that you would make us a people that make much of Christ, that rejoice in his work on our behalf. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would remember your work on our behalf that this would be a time where we celebrate the grace that you have put on display to us in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for shedding your blood for us, this blood that we are to hold sacred. Thank you for shedding your blood for us, and by that we have forgiveness of sins. Thank you that you are coming back for us, and one day we will see you face to face and behold the rainbow that is around the throne of heaven with you seated on it. We look forward to that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.